Hey everyone, this is Mike. <clears throat> this is a presentation on contracts. This is probably going to be part one of about eight separate parts, um, just because there are a lot of moving pieces when it comes to contracts and I want to cover as many topics as possible. This presentation is useful uh, for business people, for anybody who has entered into a contract, uh, with another party and perhaps there is an issue that has come up where one of the parties has defaulted. Um, this presentation can also be useful for freelancers and for actors who are um, signing contracts to uh, do gigs um, as well as any type of performing artists. So um, just a little bit about me. I am an attorney and I specialize in tax law as well as entertainment law. <clears throat> and we're going to jump right into a, um, an introduction to give you some background about contracts. Uh, these are some of the questions that we as lawyers ask when we're uh, crafting a contract um, or reviewing a contract to um, see if there are any problems with it. Uh, so these are the main uh, issues that we look for. First, did the parties form an agreement? This deals with the law of offer and acceptance. There really can be no contract unless the actions and words of the traders manifest what we call a mutual objective assent to be bound by the terms of the agreement. Another issue that we look at is the impact of ambiguity of language or mistake of the traders as potentially preventing the formation of the agreement. As lawyers, um, yes, we do have clients that come to us and are looking to find a way to get out of a contract um, that um, they feel was one-sided or unfair or one where the other party didn't live up to the terms. So these are all uh, issues that we're spotting as we review the contract. And here are the steps. <clears throat> Step one is, can you find an offer? Step two, if you can, at the time acceptance was attempted, was the offer still outstanding? This goes directly to the life of the offer. In step three, if we find an offer and it was still open for acceptance at the time it was the uh, the subject of the attempted acceptance, was there a defective acceptance? So here are some major truths about the law of contracts. Courts favor the reconstruction of events which occur within the agreement process so as to conclude that a contract has been formed. Um, so this is basically a presumption um, that is favor, favor, in favor of contract formation. The technique for achieving positive reconstruction of events is the objective theory of contract formation. The courts uh, review these contracts with a fine-tooth comb and look for the words and actions of the traders, and they evaluate them through the eyes of the reasonable person. A reasonable, prudent person is um, a legal term of art that comes up frequently in contracts law. It is what a reasonable person would have believed that a loan has legal significance and not subjectively what um, you know Mary might have thought. We're always 
using this reasonable, prudent person standard. So for finding an offer, uh, these are some of the subpoints. Look for a stipulation that an offer is outstanding. If the offer is not stipulated, you have to find an objective manifestation of a present intention to form a present contract. That manifestation must have been communicated to the other party. There are three elements to every offer, intent, content, and communication. So when we speak of intent, what we're talking about here is that there has to be an objective manifestation to form a present contract right here and right now. When we speak of content, the offeror, and just um, to go back a little bit, we oftentimes refer to the traders um, that are forming an agreement as the offeror and the offeree. Uh, so you'll see those uh, terms used throughout this presentation. The offeror must set forth the essential terms of his or her proposal or else a reviewing court and offeree would never know what to accept or to enforce in the first place. Communication. There has to be communication of the intention and the terms to a person in the fact pattern who is intended by the offeror as the offeree. For state of mind questions, we have an objective test. We don't ask uh, subjectively whether the person thought there was an offer. Um, at the end of the day, um, a person might have a monetary motive to say yes. Um, instead, we ask the question, would a reasonable person in the circumstances as this real person understand that, um, you know, and fill in the blanks would be making an offer? So for preliminary negotiations, uh, these questions basically call for you to decide whether at the point at which one of the parties thinks he has formed a contract, the actual discussions had merely been a discussion of possible future business, which we refer to as preliminary negotiations, as opposed to parties who had just done present business. That is a fine distinction, and it is critical that it be a present, um, that the parties have just done a present business and not merely discussed or talked about possible future business because that um, preliminary negotiations does not constitute um, an exchange, a present exchange of offer and acceptance. Is there a potential agreement? Has um, has the offeree accepted a present offer or merely reacted enthusiastically to a preliminary negotiation? How do you make the distinction? What we do is we apply the objective theory of contract formation. We place great emphasis on the facts. Looking at the setting, um, we evaluate the setting. Uh, people negotiate and extend offers and acceptance by letters um, as well as by electronic correspondence these days. A tip here is that if you're judging a particular communication, the closer that communication comes to spelling out all of the essential terms of the proposed agreement so that the only thing left for the other party to do is, is to say, I accept, that brings it closer to a intention on the part of the other party 
to accept a present offer. And the more specific the offeror is to the essential terms, um, the more that the more that confirms that there is a present uh, manifestation um, for a present offer. So for content, the offeror must set forth the essential terms expressly or within the range of permissible implication. When we talk about the essential terms, we're referring to identifying the parties to, to the proposed contract. Uh, we're talking about identifying the subject matter of the proposed exchange, the time for performance, and the price. Under a common law, a communication that lacked any of those terms was deemed to be indefinite uh, or too indefinite to constitute an offer. Today, the trend is to favor reconstruction of events that have arisen at the formation process so as to conclude that a contract has been formed. Again, um, just like there's a presumption of innocence when a person is charged with a criminal offense, in the law of contracts, there's a presumption when a contract, when there's a contract dispute in court, that a contract has been formed. So there's been common law reform, and uh, this states that if in the fact pattern there is total silence by traders with respect to one of the essential terms of the bargain, again, uh, those terms being identification of the parties, identification of subject matter, time for performance, and price. If there is total silence by the traders with respect to any one of those terms, the court will attempt to salvage the transaction by treating the mutual complete silence as an objective manifestation of consent to trade on a reasonable term. What's a reasonable term? Well, if the parties have done business before, a reasonable the term would be deduced from their prior history, essentially going back in time and looking at um, prior contracts that were constructed between the parties. This is called course of performance. It takes precedence over general market custom in determining what would be the reasonable term for these two specific traders. If the parties have never done business before, the court will attempt to find a commercially reasonable term in customs and mores of the marketplace. But again here, there must be total silence. That's the key for the common law rule to apply. If the parties were subtle in addressing a disputed term, but did so in an ambiguous or half-hearted manner, then a common law, no court would imply a reasonable term because that would be making a bargain that's different than the one the party sought to make themselves. Um, this deals with the Uniform Commercial Code and merchants. Um, I'm not going to get into this because the Uniform Commercial Code is a very um, technical um, code and it has its own uh, rules. It's its own uh, animal, so to speak. So I'm going to skip over this. Communication. Um, this deals with communication of the intention and the terms to a person in the facts who's intended by the offeror as the offeree. At the end of the day, if there's been no communication, then there's no way for an offeree to A, know that there was an offer extended to him, and B, 
if there was no knowledge of an offer that was extended to him, there's no way for an offeree to make an acceptance because he doesn't even know that there was an offer. So there's got to be what we call communication. It's kind of the equivalent of creating a video and not uploading it to YouTube, and it just sits on your desktop. Well, how are people, how is your audience going to know about it if it hasn't been uh, put on a distribution platform like YouTube? Step two, if you find an offer at the time acceptance was attempted, the issue in step two is to determine whether the offer was still outstanding. Um, so it's possible for the offeror, the person who makes the offer, to rescind the offer um, before the offeree has the opportunity to accept it. So that's why we have to determine whether the offer is still outstanding so uh, the offeree actually has the opportunity to accept it. An offeror is in complete control of the terms that would create the power which um, she would uh, create the power of acceptance. So um, basically the offeror is like the Lord of the Rings when it comes to uh, making the offer and being in control of the terms. If the offeror specifies that her offer is going to expire on a specific date or on the occasion of any specific event, the power of acceptance is explicitly limited by those terms no matter how unreasonable. So I cannot emphasize that enough. Again, the offeror is lord of the offer. And to the extent that the offeror um, uh, labels or places a term in the agreement that sets, uh, that, that only gives the offeree up until a certain date or up until the occasion of a specified event to accept, then that is, um, that is an airtight um, offer. And if the date by which the offeror but if the date by which the offer was to expire has come and gone without the offeree accepting, then there's nothing for the offeree to accept because the offer is no longer um, is no longer available. No contract may ever be created after the point fixed in time by the offeror for the expiration of that offer. What if the offeror says nothing concerning the life of the offer? Well, this will test your understanding of the basic elements of contract construction that fix the life of the offer in absence of it being set by the offeror. Here we have an offer expiring under its terms um, by lapse of time. And again, um, I'm going to emphasize this concept that, you know, the offeror is the lord of the offer and has the um, and has the ability to um, set an expiration date by which the offer will expire. So offers like people die of old age. If the offer sets no expiration date, by implication of law, it's open for acceptance for a reasonable time only. Never assume that it's open for, uh, never assume that it's open for an indefinite time. Um, use the facts that are available to flesh out what, um, what would be a reasonable time. So, for example, if 
John offers to sell you a carload of ripe bananas in an unrefrigerated railroad railroad car in California on July 15th and says nothing about the life of the offer. It's probably going to be open for only a couple of minutes. Uh, the reason being is because um, you can imagine bananas, uh, ripe bananas in an unrefrigerated railroad car in the middle of the summer in California. I mean, you can you can feel that sweltering heat, and um, even you know, and and imagine that those bananas are going to go bad in no time flat. On the other hand, what about an offer for diamonds where the offeror says nothing about the life of the offer? This offer would be open for a long time, um, as uh, you know, as is obvious here. Diamonds are. Uh, not perishable, and the price is not volatile. Um, so this is how you might analyze what's meant by a reasonable time. Operation of law. Death or destruction of subject matter terminates the offer by operation of law. So here we have John offering to sell you his home for $80,000. The fire, um, A fire here destroys the residence. John's offer to sell is revoked by operation of law. And that's because there's no longer any residence to be purchased. It's, uh, you know, basically now a, uh, a heap of rubble. The same thing happens if there is death or insanity or illegal incapac incapacity of the offeror or the offeree. The offer is terminated or revoked by operation of law. How about um, supervening illegality of the proposed subject matter? I realize that's a mouthful. If following um, the communication of the offer, but prior to acceptance, the government intervenes and declares the proposed bargain illegal, the offer to perform it is revoked by operation of law. And that's what's meant by a supervening illegality, something where the government passes some law uh, between the time the offer was made and before acceptance, uh, where the, uh, the law uh, might make that type of bargain illegal or that specific bargain illegal, then the offer to perform is revoked. Termination by rejection. So here, uh, here's a quick and dirty example. The offer to sell John your car for 10 grand. John says no. John's rejection as a matter of law terminates your offer. John, after spotting your shiny uh, Porsche, could not form a contract by coming back to you on his hands and knees and saying, I meant to say yes. So the discovery here is that um, uh, John is offering to sell you a Porsche. Um, and uh, evidently you don't know the make of the car and you say no without any further knowledge than, uh, than that John is just making you an offer to sell you his car. Oh, I'm sorry. I did it the other way around. It's you offering to sell John your car for 10000 I apologize. And basically John says no. Well, that's his loss because... Um, even though he finds out later that uh, you, ha you were um, about to sell him a shiny Porsche, 
he could not form a contract by coming back to you on his hands and knees and saying, I meant to say yes. Ten seconds after John said no, there was no longer anything left for him to accept. The offer died a brutal death at the hands of his rejection. So again, it's John's loss here. Um, the fact that he has um, remorse or regret, um, you know, following, uh, following, uh, following um, the spotting of your shiny Porsche uh, does not resurrect the offer in any way. He said no, and he's got to live with that. Revocation by offeror. Even though the offeror expressly states that he will keep the offer open, um, so for example, he might the offeror might say, you have one week to think about buying my home. An offer is still inherently revocable at any time prior to acceptance. Uh, so as unfair as this sounds, it is the state of the law. Can you get around this rule that an offer is inherently revocable at any time prior to acceptance, even though the offeror gave you one week to think about buying his home? Yes, there are three exceptions. The first is to purchase an option over my offer. So we'll create a hypothetical out of this where I'm the owner of a house and I'm offering to sell you my house for $80,000. I think that's consistent with the examples that we, uh, with the example that we had earlier. What you can do here um, to prevent me from revoking my offer uh, prior to that week that I gave you to think about it, you can purchase an option over my offer to sell you my home for 80 grand. So for example, um, in the agreement, you could put a, uh, you could put language that says something to the effect, I'll pay you $500 if you will stay by that commitment to give me a week to think about buying your home. An option, by the way, is a contract of its own uh, within its own offer. Um, and, and so what that means is that um, it does require its own separate consideration. And as you will find out through the course of this presentation, um, in order for there to be a contract, not only must there be offer, acceptance, but there must be consideration. And um, that's, again, what we're going to get into in a little bit. But for this purpose, an option is always a contract with its own offer, acceptance, and its own separate consideration. That's why, it, while it might seem greedy, but uh, while it might seem greedy that you have to pay $500 just to get the offeror to stand by his commitment to give you a week to think about it, um, that is, in contract law, the way it works. Um, otherwise, the option is not, is in, is not enforceable. Um, if, it, if there's merely language in the contract to say um, that, um, that offeror agrees to stay by the commitment to give offeree a week to think about it, that would be unenforceable in a court of law because there's no consideration. Um, the $500 here is the consideration and is the glue that actually cements uh, the option as a contract. So if you have formed an option, uh, my offer to sell you my house is irrevocable under the terms of that option. So I cannot do anything underhanded such as revoke my offer before the expiration of that week. I'm now bound to keep it open 
um, even if I get a better offer from another buyer. Second, uh, this would be the second exception, um, terminate my power of revocation under estoppel. Estoppel is a theory that we're going to get into um, in a later uh, module. If I tell you that you have a week to consider my proposal and you changed your position in foreseeable reliance on that statement, courts would find that I am stopped or prevented from revoking my offer given your detrimental reliance. So there's some key elements of estoppel, and it's really a pretty cool, um, pretty cool concept. But it all starts with the offeree um, basically taking, changing his or her position in reliance on the statement, which in this case would be you have a week to think about my offer to purchase my house. And so, for example, if the offeree relying upon that decides to uh, relocate from, uh, from where he lives to the state where my home is located and uproots his family um, and takes him out of the school system and rents a U-Haul truck or buys plane tickets to fly halfway across the country to uh, where this new home is located, uh, that might very well be viewed by the courts as um, detrimental reliance. So uh, not only must there be reliance, but it has to be detrimental. And there's no question that in that example, there would be detrimental reliance because of all the money, capital, and um, emotional um, you know, stress that I've put myself and my family through in reliance upon this offer that was made. And again, we're not... In this example, um, talking about an option or anything of that nature, this is just pure detrimental reliance under the theory of estoppel. Third, uh, merchant's firm offer. Uh, this is a creature of the UCC, and it applies only if the offeror is a merchant. Uh, the offeree, however, need not be a merchant. Um, let me... So if goods are the subject matter, and this is, this is really what triggers the UCC, uh, when goods are the subject matter of the attempted exchange, then an offer which is in assigned writing by a merchant trader is irrevocable according to its terms. So if it says you have 30 days, then you have 30 days. Uh, there need be no option or evidence of detrimental reliance. The code makes the merchant's written offer bond. Um, and it's with representation of stability and forcible under its terms for up to 90 days. The offeror doesn't have to name a date, but be sure that these three elements are met. First, that the offeror is a merchant. Second, that the goods are the subject matter. And third, that there is assigned writing. Step three, if you found an offer and it's still outstanding, ask whether there was a defective acceptance. At the end of the day, there are no magic words for acceptance. Acceptance must amount to a present, unconditional, unequivocal, unambiguous um, assent to each and every term of the offer. And I know that that is a mouthful, um, but 
the catchphrases here are unconditional, unequivocal assent. If the response of the offeree bears that quality, at what moment in time is the contract formed? We have this theory in contracts law called the mailbox rule. It gets drilled into our minds as young law students um, because at the end of the day, contracts law has its uh, roots in the common law. And the common law dates back to, um, to hundreds of years ago um, and from England. So this concept of the mailbox rule is introduced to us in the first term of contracts law. And it's kind of an outdated concept because today uh, we don't always rely upon the mail when we are entering agreements and exchanging contracts. Nowadays, things, of course, are sent via email, uploaded to Dropbox, um, you know, in, uploaded to portals and things of that nature. But this uh, does help us to understand um, the, the question and the spirit behind this, I, this concept of what moment in time is a contract formed. So with the mailbox rule, if parties are operating at a distance and communicating with one another, uh, the question becomes one of when does the offeree form the contract? The contract is formed with the dispatch of the offeree's acceptance if it is communicated in what's called a commercially reasonable manner, a manner that's at least as fast and reliable as the one used by the offeror. Under the modern version of the mailbox rule or depositor acceptance rule, a contract is formed the moment the offeror places her acceptance in the mailbox, even though the offeror is unaware of that. So the offeror is still bound, even though he doesn't know that formation has occurred. So one can imagine, um, you know, how this could create a parade of horribles. Um, if the offeror is bound the moment that the offeree, um, you know, puts the uh, letter in the mailbox or the mail receptacle, of course, the offeror, you know, doesn't know that, you know, that that has happened unless it was in some way broadcasted by the offeree. Um, you know, so he or she um, might be, you know, might be sitting back and plotting a way to get out of the contract um, or, you know, or, or revoke his offer, um, yet it might already be, a, it might have already been accepted by virtue of the offeree placing the mail in the mail receptacle. So it, it kind of makes it, um, you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, is a tempest in a, tea, in, a, in a tea kettle. So under the modern version, again, a contract is formed the moment the offeror places her acceptance in the mailbox, even though the offeror is unaware. The offeror is still bound, although he doesn't know the formation has occurred. All risk of delay, misdirection, or non-delivery falls on the shoulders of the offeror under the depositor acceptance rule. What happens if the offeree unconditionally and unequivocally assents to every term but doesn't use a commercially reasonable channel of communication? A contract can still be formed, but it will be formed only upon receipt by the offeror, and in the meantime, the offer remains inherently revocable at any time prior to acceptance. 
So I don't know what they're referring to here. Again, this is old common law. Um, I mean, I don't know if we're talking about the Pony Express because honestly, um, if we're not using the a mailbox or the post office to send the um, the acceptance, the unconditional and, un and unequivocal acceptance, I don't know what other form um, or what other way, perhaps maybe they're referring to facts here. Common law rejection counteroffer rule. Major problem under common law is a rule that was developed more than a century ago. If the offeree responds to an offer in any way that involves tampering with the terms proposed by the offeror, as a matter of law, not only is there no contract, but the original offer is eviscerated. Uh, it goes poof. This is called the rejection counteroffer rule. It's a huge barrier to contract formation. So what I'm talking about here is where the offeree receives an offer from the offeror, and perhaps there is a term in that offer that, um, that doesn't sit well with the offeree. And what the offeree does is the offeree takes a black marker and uh, blacks it out uh, or crosses it out, uh, thereby redacting it, and then puts a new term above that um, redacted or that redaction. Well, if the offeree then uh, mails his acceptance or sends his acceptance to the offeror, um, there's no contract. Um, basically, by the by virtue of the offeree um, tampering with the terms um, by black lining that term out as a matter of law there's no acceptance so there's no contract the original offer is eviscerated and again this is a huge barrier to contract formation what usually happens in situations like this is that the offeree is that there's maybe a a term that's been added to the offer that the offer that the offeree um, and the offeror never talked about and that was not contemplated in initial discussions. And so the offeree is taken aback by it and um, basically black lines it out of the offer and then signs it and sends it back thinking that everything is kosher. But again, as a matter of law, the moment there is any tampering uh, with the terms proposed by the offeror, uh, the offer is eviscerated and there is no acceptance and no contract. The common law gave the offeree a narrow window of opportunity. If the offer, if the offer created in the offeree the power to form a contract, in order to exercise that power, he has to make an effective acceptance. At common law, an effective acceptance was referred to as the mirror image of the offer, and therefore any attempt by the offeree to disrupt the terms of the offer was fatal, absolutely fatal to rejection. Here's an example. Um, the offeror uh, writes, I offer you my home at 500 Smith Street for $100,000 with a 15-year mortgage at 11%. It's a present offer. It's a present offer of a manifestation of a willingness to enter into agreement. In our second step, the offeree responds, 
I'll give you 90,000 cash. In our third step, the owner replies, I cannot reduce the price. In a fourth step, the offeree says, I accept. So let's take a look at this and see how, practically speaking, a court would analyze the facts of this case. If it's an offer, um, we're going to assume that it is a present offer. Uh, where the offeror says, I offer you my home at 500 Smith Street for 100000 15-year mortgage at 11%. It's an offer. So let's take a look at the second part of this, where the offeree responds, I'll give you 90000 cash. That's not an acceptance because it's not the mirror image of the offer. That's critical to understand here. Um, again, uh, what has happened here is that the offeree has tampered with the terms of the offer by saying that he's going to offer $90,000 cash. Um, so what's worse here, and this is what happens by operation of law, it's um, this, um, this phrase, I'll give you $90,000 cash, which is you know tampering with the original terms of the offer, it's regarded as a rejection slash counteroffer. So the offer is dead on arrival. If there had never been communication number three, there's nothing that the offeree could do to form a contract other than becoming the source of a counteroffer. But there was a communication number three where the owner replies, I cannot reduce the price. So number three I cannot reduce the price is an objective re-manifestation on the part of the homeowner of a continued willingness to enter into an agreement, notwithstanding the rejection counteroffer to trade on the initial terms. It goes back and refers factually and incorporates by reference everything that was included in communication number one which um, says, I offer you my home at this location for 100000 on a 15-year mortgage at 11%. And here comes number four, and this was exactly what was favored by common law. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mirror-imaged acceptance. Um, in number four, the offeree says, I accept. And so here's how to, here's the quick and dirty way of analyzing this hypo. Number one is an offer. Number two is a rejection where the offeree responds, I'll give you $90,000 cash. Number three, where uh, the owner replies, cannot reduce price, that's a counter offer and a revival of the original offer. And number four, where the offeree says, accept. That is mirror image acceptance. So we have offer and we have acceptance. Are there any other limitations on the mirrored image rule other than looking for the fortuitous presence of a revival by the original offeror? There is. Um, and here's one of the exceptions. A mere request by the offeree to the offeror that the offeror considered different terms which makes it clear that the offeree is not rejecting the offeror's offer obviously does not form a contract 
At the same time, it does not automatically trigger the rejection counteroffer rule. So here's an example. Suppose the offeree says, I will give serious thought to your offer to purchase your home for hundred grand on a 15-year mortgage. In the meantime, would you consider an immediate transaction at 90000 cash? Now, this does not form a contract, but at the same time, it does not trigger the rejection counteroffer rule. So it leaves open the possibility that the offeree could have a change in heart one hour later, call up the offeror and accept the offer. In this scenario, the offer would still be alive. So this almost seems counterintuitive and um, at odds with what we talked about before. But the distinction here is that the offeree is asking the offeror if he would consider different terms. And this, um, this is kind of like a dance here. Um, the offeree is not, you know, outright um, manipulating the terms of the offer because it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, he's testing the waters and tipping his toe in the water by asking the offeror if he would consider an immediate transaction. So while it's not uh, fatal, uh, while it's not absolutely fatal, at the same time, it's not an ironclad, um, you know, acceptance. And so it doesn't form a contract, but again, it doesn't trigger a rejection counteroffer. So it leaves open this possibility that the offeree could actually have a change of heart in uh, one hour later, call up the offeror and accept the offer. So the offer would still be alive. Um, so again, distinguish between the what we discussed earlier, where um, there is uh, distinguish between what we discussed earlier, where the um, where there are terms where the um, uh, offer or offeree rather uh, responds to an offer in any way that involves tampering with the situation where it's kind of like, um, you know, a uh, more of a cordial way of, uh, and, um, and, and one that doesn't involve manipulation where the offeree is saying, um, you know, I'm giving serious thought to your offer to purchase your home, but at the same time, you know, I'm wondering if you would just, you know, give some thought to an immediate transaction at 90000 in cash. Um, does not form a contract, does not form a contract because this is not an unambiguous uh, um, and unconditional assent to all the terms in the offer. But at the same time, it doesn't trigger the rejection counteroffer. So if the offeree um, rethinks his position, he can one hour later call up the offeror and say, you know what, let's stick with the original terms and forget I ever mentioned um, that you consider immediate, an immediate transaction at 90000 in cash. So the life of the offer is still alive. The offer is not eviscerated by the offeree suggesting or asking the offeror to consider an immediate transaction at 90000 Exception two, merely making explicit 
that which was contained in an offer or attached to the offer by operation of law does not trigger the rejection counteroffer rule. This arises in the case of a merchant seller where an implied warranty of merchantability has already been attached to the offer. If there's no disclaimer, it's already a part of the contract and the offeree has merely made explicit a term implied in the contract by operation of law. And we can compare the UCC, but um, again, we don't need to go into the UCC. So the moral of the story is beware of the offeror who does not protect herself with an ironclad offer and an offeree who uh, secretly or surreptitiously does not make a rejection counter offer, but who tries to accept while changing certain terms of the proposed business deal. Though fatal under common law, there will always be a contract under Article 2, Section 207 of the Code. And again, we didn't go into that, but this just kind of uh, summarizes the UCC position. The only issue is the fate of the terms originating with the offeree. This rises and falls on whether the terms originating with the offeree are consistent or inconsistent with the offer. We're going to stop here. Uh, we'll continue with the discussion of, um, of offers and um, get into a little bit of bilateral versus uni unilateral formation. And so this is a good place for us to stop for now. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out for me uh, via email. Um, my email address is mjdbliss at 